Amen. Good morning, Cross Point. Thank you so much for joining us in worship this morning. Kids, you can be released uh, for Children's Church. And as they make their way out, just a quick reminder, I hope you plan to stay with us after the service today for our fall launch. This is going to be over lunch together. You'll see and smell the food that we'll uh, have together after the service. But this is also going to be a special time of connection in how to take the next step here at Cross Point, specifically to connect to one of our community groups or one of our serving teams. And so we hope that you plan to stay, enjoy that time together and of connection. So today we are continuing in our 12-week series through the Minor Prophets. Each week we're looking at a different prophet. And today we're going to be in the book of Jonah. And so if you want to turn there, because Jonah's a little unusual. See, typically the way that the minor prophets are written is you have a people, a nation who are walking in rebellion to God. You have this man standing alone, proclaiming the word of God, repent and believe, follow, return to God and and calling them to repentance or this impending judgment that's coming. And so that's typically the pattern that we see, except in the book of Jonah. In Jonah, everything gets turned upside down to the degree that some have even called it like a satire. What you expect to happen doesn't happen. Who you would expect to be rebelling against God actually come to believe and trust in God. And the man of God, the prophet, is a rebel. He's fleeing from God and doesn't want to go and do what God is telling him to go and do and say. And so everything feels like it gets turned upside down. Now, for some, the story of Jonah can get reduced to this story of a man who gets thrown into the water, swallowed by a fish, and then vomited up on land. And that's it. End of story. Like, follow God or get swallowed by a fish. But what I want us to see in this historical account is so, so much more. And as we walk through this passage, I want us to see it on two different levels. On one side, I want us to see the character of God, who he is, that this is first and foremost about God before it's about Jonah. That we're going to see his character, his nature, who he is. And then in response, I want us to see in Jonah something that is reflected in all of our hearts. The the way this is written is causing, it it will lead us to a self-reflection. In light of who God is, how am I living? How am I responding? And so let's pray. And then we're going to dive into the passage together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time together this morning, surrendered to your word. Lord, singing of who you are. Lord, our hearts surrender to you. And I pray that as we walk through this passage, this historical account together, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear by the power of your spirit, Lord. Would you lead, would you guide, would you speak to our hearts this morning? And in Jesus' name, amen. What I want us to see throughout the book of Jonah is this divine chase. See, what's happening and what we see at the very beginning is it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up. 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up to me. I just want to be clear here. Is God silent? No, he's spoken. Is it confusing what God wants Jonah to do? So like, where do you want me to go? When do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? Like, there's no confusion here. God is clear. He has spoken. This is what I want you to do. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a city about 500 miles northeast of where Jonah was in the nation of Israel. It's about 200 miles north of Baghdad, which is modern-day Mosul, is where historical Nineveh would have been. And Nineveh was not a friendly place to the nation of Israel. They were hostile. They hated one another. The nation of Israel hated Nineveh. There was bad blood between them. In just a little bit, in 701 BC, the Assyrian king will actually siege the city of Jerusalem. Nahum, a book that we'll look at later, literally has this song that's like a taunt against Nineveh, saying it's a city of great bloodshed. This is what Nineveh was. So you would think God saying to Jonah, look, get up, go to this great city and preach against it. Like preached against it. I've seen their evil. I've seen what they've done. And I'm going to judge it. You would think to the prophet, he'd be like, yeah, sign me up. I want to go preach that message to their enemy. That's what would make sense. But Jonah does the exact opposite, and he walks in clear disobedience. Look at what it says. So God is clear, right? Get up, go, preach against it because of their evil has come up before me. And so Jonah, he got up, and he fled to Tarshish. He was fleeing from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid a fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He goes in the exact opposite direction. I'm trying to think from your side. So northeast, God sending Jonah northeast. So where does he go? He goes down to Joppa. He's like, you want me to go there? I'm going here. He gets on a boat from Joppa to go even further away to Tarshish. He's like, I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction that you want me to go. Why? He wants to escape God's presence. He's like, look, if you're going there, if this is what you want me to do, I want to get as far away from you as I possibly can. I want to escape your presence. But we'll see in the coming chapters that Jonah has a very good theology. He just has very bad practice. Because later he's going to say, look, I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. And yet here he is on a boat leaving Joppa for Tarshish in the bottom of the boat thinking that he can escape the presence of God. It's like playing hide and go seek with the child who closes their eyes and think they're invisible. Like you can't see me. This is Jonah, a prophet of God. I serve the God who made everything, and and I'm going to flee his presence. I just want a way. And he thinks, maybe if I run far enough, maybe if my rebellion is great enough, maybe I can escape his reach. There's something happening here in chapter 1 
in the original language, that's a literary style, and it's called a kitabosis, is what it is in Hebrew. And it's this play on words that you'll see in verse 3 that Jonah went down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat in verse 3. He goes down into the vessel in verse 5. He's thrown down into the sea in verse 16. He's sinking down into the depths in chapter 2. There's this steady motion of Jonah going down that's all linked together. That in Hebrew, going down is a euphemism for, for death. He's slowly moving further and further away. That when we're trying to run from God, we rarely realize how deep we're sinking. And yet, even at its depth, Jonah could not escape the presence of God. This is what we're going to see throughout this this story. Because in this divine chase, though... Jonah is fleeing. He's trying to run away from God. He's trying to say, get me away. I don't want to do that. I don't want to say that. I don't even want to be near you. God is pursuing. He pursues initially with this great wind. It says he throws a wind like a pitcher throws a fastball. He throws a wind at the ship. But I want you to consider something for a moment. Is God punishing Jonah for this, or is he pursuing Jonah? See, sometimes I think we have this view of God, like one of the Greek gods sitting up on a throne with a lightning bolt in his hand, just waiting for someone to step out of line and like zap, zap. But God is different. The one true God who made heaven and earth isn't just zapping Jonah for disobedience. He's pursuing Jonah. He's pursuing Jonah's obedience, but more than his obedience, he's pursuing Jonah's heart. Does God punish and judge disobedience? Absolutely. But does God also lovingly pursue his children? Absolutely. I want us to see the wind as God's pursuit of Jonah's heart that he's causing pain, he's causing discomfort to draw Jonah's heart back to himself. But Jonah, meanwhile, it says he's sleeping in the bottom of the boat. The sailors are crying out to God, right? Like the saying, there's there's no atheist in a foxhole. When you're facing death, it says all the sailors, they're all crying out to their own God. Someone, one of them, anyone, please save us, but nothing. The wind continues to blow. Death still feels imminent. So the captain goes down into the belly of the boat and like, Jonah, why are you sleeping? Pray to your God. Maybe he'll save us. The sailors, it says, cast lots. Who's the cause for this? This is obviously divine. This is obviously from God's hand. It's unusual. The lot falls onto Jonah. They're like, Jonah, why? What is this? And Jonah, this is when he makes the comment that he serves, ironic, the one true God, the one who made the sea and the land, the one that he is foolishly trying to run from. And and here's the amazing thing. The sailors are terrified. Jonah is indifferent. Like, yep, that's me. This is who I serve. Here's the reality. 
having a right theology does not always lead to right living. Jonah had a right theology. He understood, and we're going to see this even more come later in the story, but we're not told this until later. We're told much more why Jonah ran, but I want to wait because the story waits to tell us why. Jonah had a good theology, and it was that theology that led him to want to walk in rebellion to God because he didn't like who God was. He would do it different. And he didn't want to be part of it. And so that the sailors ask, here's the amazing thing. The sailors are like, what should we do? It's your fault. What should we do to make the wind stop to save us? Now, here's what Jonah doesn't say. Turn the boat around. He doesn't say, I repent. Like, okay, we're headed southwest. God told me to go southeast. Can we just like turn the boat around and and I need to go back. He doesn't say that because quite honestly, he doesn't want to repent yet. He would rather die than obey God. He He chooses suicide by sailor rather than obedience to God. This is where Jonah is at. He's like, if I can't escape him on a boat, if I can't escape him by heading in the complete opposite direction, then throw me to the bottom of the sea. Let me die and sink to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea because maybe there I can escape his presence. And so they throw him overboard. They plead for mercy to his God, to the one true God who made heaven and earth. They cry out while Jonah continues to walk in rebellion hoping the bottom of the sea he could escape God's presence. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Again, God's judgment? Was this God's punishment or God's pursuit of Jonah? Again, I would argue this is God pursuing in the divine chase of a man rebelling against God. It is God like the hound of heaven on the scent of a lost child. Pursuing, pursuing. And what I want you to see in this is the character of God. Here's a man rebelling against God in his relentless pursuit for his child who's walking in rebellion. And in the midst of their foolishness, in the midst of their childlikeness, closing their eyes, thinking that they're somehow invisible to the presence of God, he's near and he pursues with a loving kindness. And it's here, in this moment, that in the divine chase, Jonah is caught in grace. Look at verse one of chapter two, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. That's a funny verse, right? Like, just think about this. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. See, here's the thing. Sometimes I think we make repentance more complicated than it really is. Repentance isn't that complicated. Repentance literally means turning from the direction you're going and turning back to God. 
God said go northeast. He went southwest. Sometimes what we think and what we make of repentance is, oh no, I've gone too far, I've done too much, I've sunk too deep, now I have to somehow get back to where I was and then turn to God. But that's not what repentance is. And in the lie of our own rebellion, we make it more complicated where what it's really saying is in your lowest moment, turn to God. And that's exactly where Jonah finds himself. Because ultimately he never escaped God's presence to begin with. It's not as though Jonah had to get back to God's presence somehow before he could repent. Exactly where Jonah was, God was there. Do you remember why Jonah fled? It says he wanted to escape God's presence. He wanted to flee, get me away, let me go in the opposite direction, let me sink to the bottom of the sea. Maybe there I can escape the presence of God. And yet he could not escape his presence. Running in the exact opposite direction, he could not escape God's presence. Sinking to the bottom of the ocean, he could not escape God's presence. Now sitting in the belly of a fish, he could not escape God's presence. And he's caught in grace. Running seemed like the best option. Being thrown into the sea seemed like the best option. Anything, anything except surrendering to God's will. And yet God pursued and pursued until the sea swallowed Jonah. In verse 3 of chapter 2, when you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me, all your breakers and your billows swept over me. Do you see how he's attributing this to God? It was God's breakers, his billows. God, Jonah, in that moment, preferred to throw himself in God's judgment rather than surrender to his will. Until everything changed. It says, I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried for help from deep inside Sheol and you heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight. See, it's here. I don't think Jonah was just scared of like, oh no, this is real. I'm about to die. And he's gasping for breath. And then he decides he actually wants to live. I don't think necessarily that's what caused him to respond in repentance and turn back to God. I think it's there. In verse four, but I said, I have been banished from your sight. The, he was more terrified of what it actually meant to be outside the presence of God than he was a physical death itself. And it was here when he felt banished, when he felt like, oh no, is this it? I'm about to take my last breath. And there was a, a terror that caused him to lift his eyes above his situation. And I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed wrapped around my head, I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth gates shut behind me forever. 
Do you see the scene? It's not like he was just thrown in the water and then the fish immediately came and got him. It sounds like Jonah is sinking and sinking till you can no longer see the surface of the waters, till all you see is darkness, till he felt felt banished from the presence of God and in terror when he hit his lowest moment, he lifted his eyes and he cried for help. And there, God was present. And look at what it says. That salvation belongs to the Lord. In verse 7, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. I will fulfill what I have vowed in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, it doesn't matter what Jonah had done. It didn't matter how deep he had sank. It didn't matter how filthy he was. It didn't matter when he turned to God. When he cried out for help, God was present and he saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I want us to see the character of God here and just pause for a moment. Because consider this. For some, this may be your story. You're running. You're like, I know how God wants me to live. I know who he says he is, and I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. I'm going to do the opposite of everything I know to be true and right. I just want to escape and live my own life. Leave me alone. And yet God pursues. And yes, God causes difficulties and hardships and a loving kindness of pursuit that leads us to repentance. Is this your story? Or is this the story of a loved one? Someone who you know, you know that they know what's right, they know what's wrong, and yet they're choosing to live in complete rebellion to those truths. And you're just like, how can this be? What I see in the story of Jonah is hope. It's hope that God doesn't abandon the rebel. He doesn't just let them go into their own rebellion. The hope that God pursues his lost children to the furthest corners of the earth. Hope that God pursues to the deepest and darkest of depths when death seems imminent, when banishment seems like the final conclusion. God is present and with one final breath, mercy is called upon. God is present there to save. That's the character and nature of our God. This is what is on display in Jonah's life, that he is caught up in grace in this divine chase. But repentance is not the end of the story. In many ways, it's the start of a journey. It's not the end. Because really, quite honestly, in chapter 3-1, if, if the only point was for Jonah to obey God and do what he said, the story would end after verse 3 of chapter 3. But that is not the end. Jonah is caught in grace, but he has not yet surrendered to it. There is a wrestling with God that continues, even after obedience. Because God isn't done with Jonah yet. God doesn't just want Jonah's obedience. He wants Jonah's heart. 
And you're going to see that pursuit continue as God pursues not just his obedience, but his heart. Because here we will see the wrestling. Verse 1 of chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Can we just pause here? God is a God of second chances. Like we're going to see verses 1 through 3 in chapter 3 directly mirror chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. God's word, he speaks again clearly, obviously, to, the, to Jonah. It comes a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh. Sound familiar? And preach the message I will tell you. So Jonah got up like before, but this time he went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. You see him now walking in obedience. But though Jonah obeys technically, I would argue that his obedience is heartless. Here's what we'll see. Because God doesn't just want his obedience. He's not like, hey, Jonah, just go say these words, and then Jonah goes and says these words, and then God leaves it alone. Something more is happening here. Jonah's message, he set out, and on the first day, this is in verse 4 of chapter 3 of his walk into the city, he proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That's it. That's all we're told. Maybe he said more, maybe he didn't, but in the account, that's all we're told. In the original language, this is five words. It's like if I stood up here, I can't even count, if I said five words, done, walk off stage. Did someone clap? Like, please, yes. (laughs) He didn't want Nineveh to repent. He wanted judgment. And here's the thing, like, God said, I've seen their evil. Go warn them, destruction is coming. But for some reason, it says, Jonah didn't want to do this. We're going to find out. But first we're told the people of Nineveh actually believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They dressed in sackcloth from the the greatest to them among the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes in the Lord. He saw their actions in verse 10, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster that he had threatened them with. And he did not do it. But here's the thing. The point of the story is still not in the repentance of Nineveh. That's a part of the story that's helping us see the character of God in the rebellious heart of man. Nineveh's saved. 120,000 people were told. And Jonah is ticked off. He's furious. Here's the people. He proclaimed what God told him to proclaim. And look at verse 4. Jonah was greatly displeased. He became furious with God. He prayed to the Lord, please, God, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that you were slow to anger. I knew that you were abounding in faithful love and that you're one who relents from sending disaster. And so take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live with such a merciful, gracious God. This is Jonah. 
Now we know why he fled. Why when God told him to go up to Nineveh, he went to Tarshish. He didn't want them to repent. Yes, God said, go, tell them that I'm going to demolish them. I see their anger. But he's like, I know you. I know you. You're gracious. You're merciful. And if they repent, you're going to relent. And I want them all to die. That's how much he hates them. This is why I said a right theology of who God is does not necessarily lead to right living. He saw exactly who God was, and he hated it. And he wanted no part of it because he wanted to see them burn. And this is God continuing to pursue Jonah. That Jonah's obedience, I believe, was heartless. It lacked any compassion. It lacked any mercy from God. He was simply doing it because he was supposed to do it. And every time he ran away, a fish swallowed him up and vomited him on land. So it's like, where can I flee from the presence of God? Fine, I'll say it. And then they repent and he's ticked off. And then God, he asked him, he's like, is it right for you to be so angry? Like, you're furious with me. Do you have any right to be angry with me for being a merciful, compassionate, faithful God? Jonah doesn't even bother answering him. He left the city. He found a place east of it, which I find curious. It's not like he heads back in the direction of home. He just goes further away east. He sits outside the city, and he made himself a little shelter there, and he sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. He's like, I'm still hoping it burns. I just want to watch the destruction. All 120,000 of them, all the cows, all the people, that's what I want. And he's sitting there. He builds himself a little shelter to watch the city burn, still holding out hope that God will judge them. And God pursues. Even as Jonah is sitting there, marinating in his anger toward God for being merciful and compassionate, God cares about Jonah's heart. See, this is why I say it's not just that God cared about his obedience, he cared about his heart. Because he didn't just say, okay, well, you did your job, you're good. He pursues him. The life of Jonah teaches us that God, it's not just that he forces us to obey, but he pursues those whom he loves. He draws our heart compassionately and graciously toward himself. Do you have any right to be angry? And so he gives Jonah this living illustration. He causes this plant to grow up overnight. It he's so angry, he just falls asleep in his anger. Seems like Jonah does this a lot, doesn't it? Like he's in the boat, he fell sound asleep in the belly of the boat. Like rebelling is hard. He's sitting outside the city, he builds himself a shelter, he falls asleep there. God causes a plant to grow up to provide shade for him the next day. And he's like, ah, oh, this is wonderful. In the shade, I'm going to sit back here in my lounge chair and then watch the city burn. And then the next night, he stays there, it seems, all day, because the next night God causes a worm to eat the plant and the plant dies. Jonah is back to being furious again. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Again, God pursuing. Yes, 
Yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die. Like, just kill me already. I would rather die than to see your mercy. I would rather die than walk in obedience. I'm tired of it all. This is where Jonah is at. And so the Lord said, you cared about the plant. You didn't labor over it. You didn't make it grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right or their left, as well as many animals? And then it ends. We don't know how Jonah responds. The point is this, is that God is compassionately pursuing the heart of Jonah. He's like, look, you care more about this plant. You're more angry and compassionate, actually, about this plant than you are people, 120,000, who have been made in my image. And you would rather see them burn than repent? Like, see your heart. And here's what happens in the story. The book of Jonah is meant to be like a mirror because it's not answered. We don't know how Jonah responds. The question then becomes our own. Are you so angry with God that you would walk in rebellion? Do you care more about your comfort than you do those who are suffering? Is it right for you to be angry with God? Is it right for you to walk in rebellion against God's command? Is it right for you to have a heartless obedience? We don't know how Jonah responds because the question then becomes our own. Are you running from God? Think about this. Do you really think you can run from God? Do you really think you can hide? Do you think that those things that nobody else knows about that happens in the basement of your life is somehow hidden from God? That he doesn't know? That if you just close your eyes, if you just shut your bedroom door, then no one will know. How are you trying to hide from God? How are you seeking to run from him? What you know to be true Is it his love and mercy like Jonah that you would rather just see those people you don't like get judgment rather than mercy? I'm not going to share the gospel with them. They don't deserve it. Pick your people group. Pick your neighbor. Pick your coworker. I don't like them. Maybe it's God's justice and mercy that you don't like. I don't want to tell them that they have to repent. Who am I to tell them that they're wrong? I want them to like me. I don't like what God has to say here. I'll just keep my mouth shut. What aspect of God's character do you accuse him of because it's not how you would do it? Because really, is our heart that much different than Jonah? How are you following God with heartless disobedience? Oh, you're doing the right thing. 
then you accuse God of the outcome. I did it. I don't want to do it. I don't like doing it. I don't like how you do it, but I did it. So doesn't that make it all okay? Isn't that all you want, just to do the right thing? And meanwhile, your heart is hostile toward God. It's hostile. It's not reflecting the the nature and the character of God's heart. Your heart is in opposition to God's heart, but you're doing the right thing. You're doing what's expected. Where is your obedience half-hearted? Where have your affections run toward animosity toward God for making you do the right thing? I wish I didn't have to be pure. I wish I didn't have to do this. Wouldn't life be so much better if I could just do what I wanted? But no, I'm going to do what God says. Do you see it? Are we really that much different than Jonah? Where is your obedience heartless? What does it look like to surrender everything to God's heart? That's where it comes down. That's what God is pursuing, not just the surrender of our actions, not just the surrender of our our obedience, but the surrender of our hearts to him. That's what he's pursuing. That's what he's chasing down. What are you withholding? Where are you sitting outside the city, shaded in your own comfort, just waiting for everything to turn into chaos? Angry at God, furious with him because he didn't do what you wanted him to do. And if you were God, you would have done things different. So you're just sitting there like, fine, whatever. That can be the posture of our heart. Even sitting here in church this morning, that can be the posture of our heart. God has let you down. He didn't do what you wanted him to do. He's different than you want him to be. And if he's going to be that way, then you don't want to have anything to do with him. And he's pursuing and he's gracious and he's kind and he's loving and he pursues And he calls for our everything. Will we give it? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. The unexpected places that we find grace and mercy. Lord, in the story of Jonah, not just seeing his rebellion, but seeing your mercy, your kindness for Jonah, for the sailors, for Nineveh, for the animals in Nineveh, Lord, that you cared. You were at work even in the midst of his rebellion. You were graciously and compassionately working. Lord, help us to not merely have the right belief and walk in disobedience, but help us to see you clearly, to surrender fully, and to walk in the fullness of your grace. And in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you in response for us to celebrate the Lord's table together. Now, if you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, I would encourage you to not partake in this aspect of the service, but to observe, to watch, ask questions, listen, pray. This is for those who have surrendered their life to Christ because what I want us to see is Christ in the story of Jonah. 
Because see, there was a time when the Pharisees, these religious leaders at the time of Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, we want a sign. We want to see something. Prove to me that what you say is true. And Jesus said, look, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. What did he mean by that? See, it's here that we realize that Jonah, though he had rebelled against God when he had been swallowed up in the belly of this fish for three days and for three nights, and then he was vomited up on land, and he walks into the city of Nineveh, seaweed wrapped around his head, the the stink of rotting fish on his flesh, walked in, and they realized what God had done, and and Jonah proclaimed that five-word message. It brought the city to repentance. It was proof that what, what Jonah was saying was true and from God. And Jesus is like, that sign of Jonah, that I too will die, but I will voluntarily lay my life down. I will not re- walk in rebellion. When God says, lay my life down, Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was the one that by the power of his own word, calmed the storms. Jesus voluntarily laying down his life, dying on the cross for our wrongs, for our rebellion, remaining in the grave three days and three nights and rising from the dead, being the sign of Jonah, showing that what he says is true, it is trustworthy, that our hope is in God, that he does pursue the rebel, he does pursue and he is present to the deepest of depths and that his grace is sufficient. And when we partake of the Lord's table this morning, that's what we're remembering. That's what we're proclaiming together. That Jesus is the better Jonah. He's the sacrificial savior who laid down his life to transform not just our obedience, but our hearts.